Amen. It is so good to be here with you this morning. I don't know about you, but I needed to be here this morning. And I, I just want to say thank you to Robert and Dana and just for all of you making yesterday, I think, the best church picnic we've ever had. And it was certainly the biggest picnic we've ever had. We had the most people we've ever had out at uh, their place yesterday. And so many of our new folks were there. And it was exactly what I was hoping it would be. If you weren't there, we missed you. We hope you'll maybe think about coming next year to the church picnic. Before we get into the message this morning, I want to give you just uh, an update. And just to say again, there is no group of people like you are. You all just, you allow God to do exceedingly abundantly above all that this pastor could ask or think. Because I want to share with you some really great news this morning. Uh, through your generosity and God's grace working in your lives, we were able to inform Pastor Ola Che and his wife Carmen yesterday that we are going to be able to send them a check for $12,000. Yes. Thank you all for that. They were, needless to say, blown away, speechless uh, for that gift that we are able to send to them. So thank you so much for your generosity towards them. Great encouragement. We are beginning a series this morning dealing with the heart of worship, our heart of worship. And I believe over this next seven weeks that this may be the most significant sermon series I've ever done. I don't think I'm overstating that. I believe that God wants to do an unprecedented work in each of our hearts and lives through this series. But let me say this. This series is not going to be a feel-good series. If you're looking to just feel good, you're going to have to go to another church for the next six weeks. But I can promise you this. If you hang in there and go through this and allow God to work on your heart as he's worked on my heart through preparing for this series, I believe you'll come out the other side closer to God and maybe stronger in God than you ever have before. Because God wants to perform some heart surgeries over these next seven weeks. God wants to take maybe some thorns out that obviously are painful to take out, but once they're out, it feels so much better that they're out. God wants to, in a sense, give us that deep tissue massage that hurts and feels good all at the same time. And so I hope you'll join me over these next seven weeks. You may say that Job is such a strange place to do a worship series from. But when you really study the book of Job, 
you come to understand that Job is all about our heart. And that's where worship flows from, our heart. And even here this morning, we're going to discover that Satan challenges, challenges Job's heart of worship. And that the heart of worship is going to be tested. Our heart of worship is tested throughout our lives as well by trials, by circumstances, by tribulation, by pain and suffering, all the things that Job went through, you and I will go through similar things. Maybe not to the extent, maybe not all at once like Job, but our lives are going to be filled periodically with seasons of suffering and pain and trial and tribulation. And those are dangerous times for our hearts and souls. Because the Bible tells us that any of us, when we go through those seasons, can become very bitter. And our hearts and souls can become disillusioned against God. And we can become angry at God. And we can distance ourselves from God. Because built into those trials is not a guarantee of spiritual benefit. The spiritual benefit only comes as to how we respond to those trials, to that pain, to those seasons of suffering. And so even here, these next seven weeks, there is no guarantee of spiritual benefit just because you attend these next seven weeks. For all of us, it's going to be, how are we going to respond to what God is revealing to us from his word over these next seven weeks? So with that said, let's begin by getting into Job chapter 1 this morning. And I've divided Job chapter 1 into four sections. The context of Job, the challenge to Job, the catastrophe that befalls Job, and the confession of Job this morning. I want to first just take a few minutes and look at the context of Job. And by the way, I'm going to give sort of a, a statement that sort of is an umbrella, if you will, over this entire series. And that statement is this, and you will hear this probably every week for the next seven weeks. A God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. A God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. God's providence is always purposeful in our lives. But some of those purposes are incomprehensible to us as human beings. Some of those purposes are never revealed in this life or throughout eternity. Can we follow a God that we don't always understand? Can we love a God we don't always understand. Can we worship a God we won't always understand? So let's talk for a moment about the context around Job here. Job is actually mentioned as a hero of faith in the book of Ezekiel by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, verse 14 and verse 20. And as you talk about this man, Job, notice in chapter 1, verse 1, that he's from an obscure place, the land of Uz, not the land of Oz, Uz. And the reason I bring that out is because it reminds us that God sees everyone. 
There are no small places or small people with God. There are no obscure places or obscure people with God. Job was not from some big city. Job wasn't planted, you know, in the midst of it all, if you will. Job was from an obscure, out-of-the-way place, and yet God saw Job and knew exactly every detail of what was going on in Job's life. In fact, we're going to see, and this is one of the rubs, if you will, is that God's right at the heart of it all. His name is Job. That man was pure and upright. It simply means he was wholly devoted to God. We, he's a disciple. We talked about that in our discipleship series. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. He had great respect and reverence for God. We're told he had seven sons and three daughters, so ten children. His wealth or possessions included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, in addition to a very great household. In Job's day, unlike today, Wealth is not measured as it is today in stocks and bonds and how much we have in a bank account. In Job's day, your wealth or your material possessions were wrapped up in your livestock, your cattle, and all of that. And I want you to keep that in mind for later on in the story of Job. Thus, he was the greatest, literally the weightiest of all the people in the East he carried a lot of weight. He was what we would call today a mover and a shaker. Even though he was from a, an obscure place, everyone around Job knew of Job. He was sort of like the community leader, if you will, in his community and obviously in his family. In fact, speaking of the ministry that this father even had to his family, notice what it says in verse 4 through verse 5. Now his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. That was nice that his children got together on their own. When the days of their feasting were finished, Job would send for them and sanctify them. He would make arrangements to hallow God before his children. That's what it means. I think, wow, that's a challenge to us as parents and grandparents. How are we hallowing God? God before our children and grandchildren. And then it says he would get up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, so ten. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, indicating that maybe they did not have a proper reverence and respect for God in their heart. Wow, there's a challenge as well to us as parents and grandparents. He didn't have the attitude that a lot of parents and grandparents have today, like, oh, my kids really aren't that bad. They're not little sinners. You know, they never do anything wrong. No, he was just the opposite. Like, yeah, they're kids and they're children, even their grown children. It's like, are they really reverencing and respecting God as they should? So Job would offer sacrifices. And Job is making an important statement here, or a statement made about Job. Notice the phrase, in their hearts. Job understands that's really 
where it all begins. That's the wellspring of all of our life is our heart, that we can externally look like we're worshiping God and, and loving God and serving him, and we can do all the right things externally, but God understands, and Job then understood, but it's got to be from the heart, and it's got to be about our heart because that's where God sees. And you and I can try to fool God, but we can't because he sees our heart, but we can fool each other. And we maybe even somehow self-deceive and can fool ourselves for a time in, in having some kind of external or outward, you know, going through the motions of something, but yet our heart being far away from God. Jesus talks about this. He says, you honor me with your lips, Jesus said while here on earth, but many who were following him, he says, but your heart is far from me. Who? I think about that in the context of Christianity today and church today and people who come to church and fellow Christians and all of that. How many of us come to church and may honor God with our lips and with everything externally, but our heart is far from God? So that's why this is a worship series. Because again, if we're going to be true worshipers of God who worship God in spirit and in truth, it's got to come from our heart. Therefore, if there's anything in our heart or about our heart that isn't quite right or that needs to, to be dealt with or lined up with God, it's got to be dealt with in order for us to truly open up our heart and be able to worship God like never before, which is why this series needs to be that bridge that gets us as a church from where we are now to where God wants us to be, because we've all got to deal with some stuff in our hearts with God. And if we don't do it, then we're never going to cross that bridge and be the church or be the people that God created us to be to reach our full potential. We've got to go through this. So notice it says the day came, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also arrived among them. Folks, I could do a whole message just on these next few verses, but I'm not because that's not what we're about, and we're not here to talk about Satan and, and, and you know, the fallen angels and all of that. They just play a very small part in this whole story. This story is really about Job and his God. But Satan obviously is a bit player. And some of you are saying, what's this even about? Well, even as a fallen angel and fallen angels, they still have to be accountable to God because he's in control, he's on the throne. So therefore, they have to still report to God and give an accounting of what they're doing and what they're up to because nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. In fact, let me say this at this point, and you'll hear this again. This is one of, again, the things that you and I have to come to grips with, is that God is at the very center of all that's going on, and nothing happens to Job or in Job's life without God allowing it to happen. You and I can never say about anything in our life, God's not in this. That analysis belittles God's sovereignty. That reduces God to being some kind of extra or bit player in the unfolding of all of our lives. If God is not sovereign, then he's not God at all. And so even in Job's suffering and pain, 
God is at much, as much at work in Job's suffering and pain as he is at any other time in Job's life. So the Lord said to Satan, verse 7, where have you come from? He's basically asking Satan, state your business. Satan answered the Lord, well, I've been roving around on the earth from walking back and forth across it. It reminds us of that verse from Peter. It says, be sober, be alert, your enemy the devil, like a roaring lion is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. He's just wandering around. So the Lord said to him, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> have you paid attention to this guy? In, in a sense, it's like God is the one who puts Satan's focus on Job. And God speaks about Job with affection and pride. Notice, God says, there's no one like him on earth. He's a pure and upright man, wholly devoted to me, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Wow, this is God speaking about this man. God is saying, Job's exceptional. Job is noteworthy. People like Job are rare. I thought to myself, man, I would love for God to be able to say things like that about me. <laughs> that, that, that even amongst his own people, that, that there was things that stuck out in a good way about me that God noticed. Well, what we do know is that God notices everything. He doesn't miss a thing. And so here he is saying to Satan, this guy's amazing. And in God's eyes, this, this Job, he gets a thumbs up, maybe two. Now, that's the context that we need to understand because, again, that then reminds us that what's about to happen to Job, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead too, have nothing to do with his spirituality. He's a great man. He's a good man. He's not perfect. He's a sinner just like the rest of us. He's going to, you know, need God's grace in his life, all of that. But as far as a follower of God, there is no one better at this time than Job. But now look at verse 9. We go from the context to the challenge. Satan answered the Lord and says, is it for nothing that Job fears God? Satan is very cynical about Job's spirituality, his heart of worship. Satan's basically accusing Job and God of something. He's basically accusing Job of being this fair-weather worshiper. The only reason Job loves you and worships you is because you've been good to him and you've protected him and you've blessed him. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him and his household and all that he has on everything? You've blessed or prospered the work of his hands. His livestock have increased in the land. You've been so good to him. No wonder he loves you and worships you. But then Satan says this. Extend your hand and strike everything he has, and he will no doubt curse you to your face. He will walk away from you with no questions asked. And Satan really does bring up a really good point here. 
Because a lot of times what Satan comes out of his mouth is wrong. <laughs> but this, Satan's on to something. Because Satan understands as he's observed God's people up to this point, he sees that there are some people that the only reason that they worship God and love God and do the things that they do and serve God is because God's been good to them. That in a sense, Satan sees that there, there are some people that their heart for God or heart for worship and all of that is conditional. If things are going well, I'm with you, God. You know, they, we, we sort of treat God as that Santa Claus, that genie up there that, you know, we just hope that he keeps giving us the things that we ask for. But oh my, things start to go south and things are different. Where's our heart for God? Where's our worship of God? Would we be just as faithful to come to church and lift up our voices and worship God when things are in the tank as they are when things were on top of the world? Is it really all about the fact that we love God more than anything or anyone else and we're going to worship him no matter what the circumstances of our life are or is our worship circumstantial and conditional? And that's exactly what Satan is saying. He's saying, that's Job. So you start to allow things to go wrong in his life, God, and I'll, I'll show you a person that just, he was there because everything was good, but he's not with you if things aren't good. You start taking things away from him, you start touching him, you start allowing things to happen to him, and he's going to just say bye. And you and I, we have to wrestle with that. We really have to wrestle with that. Why do we come to church? Guilt, obligation? We here because we think, you know, things will go better for us? Or are we simply here because we love God? That's the bottom line. We, we love God and we're going to be, why do we read our Bible? Why do we worship? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? What, what is our motivation for all of it? Why do we serve God? Is it because... It's just because we love God. And it's not going to matter what our life looks like and what's going on in our life and what the circumstances or situation is in our life, good or bad, we're going to be constant. Or if things start to go a little haywire, you won't see us around anymore. And we're going to become bitter and disillusioned with God and we're going to walk away from God. Let me say, one of, the, one of the reasons why I can be so confident even in stating that is not just because the Word of God says that that's a possibility, but because I've seen it over 37 years as a pastor. I've seen so-called Christians walk away from the church and walk away from God and never come back because of something that came into their life and they became bitter and angry against God. And they might not have stated it that way, but that's exactly what happened. Do you know that that's why most atheists are atheists or agnostic? 
is because if you really get them to open up and be real with you and be transparent with you, the reason why they don't believe in God is their own sort of feeble human attempt to try to get back at God because something went wrong in their childhood or young adulthood or even somewhere along in their life, and, and they are directing that anger and bitterness that God allowed that or caused that or whatever to happen against him. And just I'm just not going to believe that he exists anymore. I'm going to try to dismiss him by putting him out of my mind. So that's where we are. That's the challenge. And I think Satan is going to challenge any of us to that level. Why are we here? Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why do we worship God? What is our primary bottom line motivation? Is it simply because God is God and we love God and we're going to worship him and serve him and love him no matter what? Or are there other things going on? Well, notice the Lord, verse 12, accepted Satan's challenge. He said, all right, everything he has in your power, only do not extend your hand against the man himself. Notice, Satan has no power over Job or any of us except God allows him to have it. Please note that. So again, God is right in the middle of all this. Yes, Satan is the tool, but God is sovereign. He's right there, allowing it all to happen. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's the challenge. Now, we don't know how many days it was from that day to this day, but beginning in verse 13, we see the catastrophe that befalls Job. And I'm just going to read it to you, and hopefully we can try to absorb it. The day came when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job saying, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing beside them. And the Sabaeans swooped down and carried them all away and killed the servants with the sword. I only am left to escape to tell you what happened. Because if Satan would have killed all of them, then nobody would have been able to report to Job what happened. So first of all, here goes all the donkeys and oxen that we talked about up in verse 3. Then verse 16, while this one was speaking, another messenger arrived and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and it has consumed them. I'm only one left, and I escaped to be able to tell you this. While this one was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and carried them all away and killed the servants with the sword. And I, again, am the only one left being able to escape and tell you. So all of Job's wealth found in all of those animals, the camels, the sheep, you know, the oxen, all gone in one day, all gone. All of his material wealth and possessions gone in one day. Verse 18, while this one was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And suddenly a great wind swept across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone escaped to tell you. Job didn't lose one child that day. He didn't lose two children that day. He didn't lose three. He lost all 10 of his children in one day. 
let that try to sink a little bit. So this man that we've already talked about, according to God, was exceptional, noteworthy. No one like him as far as his spirituality and faithfulness to God. And yet, God allows Satan to take away all of his material wealth and to take away all of his children in one day. I want us to see Job's response, or what I call his confession. We've touched on the context and the challenge and this catastrophe, but I want us to see Job's confession. But even before that, I want us to see something in verse 20. Job gets up, and he tears his robe, he shaves his head, and he throws himself down with his face to the ground. What is Job doing? He's showing his pain. He's being real with God. He does not pretend that everything is okay. He's not okay. He's a broken man. And we need to stop here. Because sometimes as Christians, as God's people, we're not real with how we're really feeling. We somehow think that it's not okay to express our pain and that we're not okay. Somehow we think we need to have the response that when somebody says, how you doing, we're like, oh, I'm wonderful because I'm a Christian and I know the Lord and I'm saved and all that. That somehow, even when we're going through horrific times in our life or painful times or times of trial and suffering, like it's not okay not to be okay. Yes, it is. God never chastises Job for not being okay. He shouldn't be okay. He's had everything, including his own children, taken from him in one day. He is in tremendous pain, maybe more pain than you and I could ever even understand the pain that has gripped this man's heart. And he's expressing it. Sometimes the worst thing we can do is to be in such pain and stuff it and act like everything is okay when everything's not okay. I've dealt with a lot of people over the years that, again, outwardly, they put on a good front, but inwardly, they are dying inside. And usually, not always, I can see it in their eyes, the windows of your soul. When you talk to somebody and you look in their eyes, you can see the hurt. You can see the pain out with. And this is why I'm saying that over these next seven weeks, God wants some of us to deal with some things that up to this point, maybe in our life, we've really not dealt with. 
We've pushed it down. We've shoved it down. We've pretended like it's not there, but it's there on our heart. And we've never really processed it and walked through it and admitted it, not only to ourselves, but obviously to God. And it's something that we've got to do if we're going to cross that bridge and get to where God wants us to get to. And then I say, let's look at Job's confession for a moment. And the reason I say this is because Jesus said, from the mouth speaks what fills the heart. So we know that these words coming out of Job are coming from his heart. And there's no doubt we can see the heart of Job's worship has been tested here this day. Is what Satan said true? If God allowed this to happen, would Satan just walk away from God and curse him? Or is there a true heart of worship in Job that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation, no matter what the loss, no matter what the pain, no matter what trial he's asked to go through, the heart of worship is still true. So notice what Job says. First of all, he bows his face to the ground before God and he worships. Would that be our response after this horrific catastrophe happened or anything similar to it in our life? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. Job is understanding, God has given me a rehearsal for my death. Say, why do you say that? Because we die stripped of everything but what we have become in this life. That's all we have. As Job said, we come into this world without anything, and when we die, we don't carry anything, all that stuff. All those materials, we don't carry it out. All we have with us at the very end of our lives is who we are, what we have become, our character, our integrity, our life with God, our legacy and imprint and impression on other people. That's it. And Job understands this, this was a good dress rehearsal for the day I die. Because I realize it all can come and it all can go because he goes on to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job realizes that everything he had, everything he had, including his own children, were on loan from God. Ultimately, they are not his. They were given to him from God and God can take them back at any time. They're ultimately not ours. They're God's. Have we come to that realization in our life? Are we willing to say, God, it's all yours, it all came from you, and if you want to take any of it back, have at it. Because I don't deserve any of it, and so it's yours. May the name of the Lord be blessed. I believe that Job's exclamation in these verses is the noblest expression of a person anywhere accepting the will of God. I don't think you'll find a more nobler expression or exclamation 
of an acceptance of the will of God anywhere than what Job says here. Job realizes that a person may stand before God stripped of everything, everything that life has given them and still lack nothing. Whew. That's a heart of worship. A person may stand before God stripped of everything that life has given them and still lack nothing. That's the heart of worship. Where would our heart be? That's what God wants to probe. That's what God wants us to think about. And listen, you may say, I'm not there. That's okay. We need to be real with God of where we're at because that's when God can take us further with him. See, one of the things we've already seen in this first chapter and in this first message is that many times trials come without warning. Many times they come without any notice or without anticipation. Our lives can change instantaneously like that. Boom, it's there. Which is why our heart of worship always needs to be growing and be Develop because you and I can't always see what's coming ahead of time. And if we're not in that place, we can't have time to necessarily prepare to be there when the trial hits. Then it's too late. Or as I said last week, you can't prepare for winter in winter. You got to prepare before winter comes. And secondly, we also learned today that there is no limit to the severity of a trial that a follower of God may be asked to endure. There is no area of life that is exempt, that's off limits to what can be touched. There is no pain that, that a Christian may have to endure that because we are a child of God, uh, we, we won't suffer that. No. That's just not true. That's not reality. You and I, even as followers of God, can, just like Job, experience the most terrific trial imaginable. The question is, where's our heart? Do we love God and have a heart to worship God that no matter what happens, no matter what God gives or especially takes away, God, my response is, I'm going to turn to you. Now, we're going to see in the coming weeks, that doesn't mean Job was okay with this. That doesn't mean Job doesn't question God or that Job doesn't ask why or that Job doesn't struggle. He absolutely does. But here's the key. Job does it with God, not apart from God. 
And that may be the biggest thing that God so far has been impressing upon me throughout my preparation to share these messages with you. Is that it's not that any of us who are normal are not going to struggle through these seasons, but that the only answer is I've got to struggle with God. I've got to struggle turning to God in my brokenness and pain instead of turning away from God and trying to do this without him because then you'll never get to where you need to get to and you'll never come to a healthy place in your life, spiritually, emotionally, or physically, trying to, to navigate and process the pain of life apart from God rather than with him. The only answer, and this is what God wants, I think, us to see more than anything else, the only answer is that when these kind of trials and suffering and pain hit our lives, that we always remember we do it with him just as Job did. He turned in his brokenness and pain to God. And he confessed with his mouth, God, I'm still going to worship you. I may not understand it. It may be incomprehensible to me. I'm looking for an answer. I'm going to want some answers, but I'm just going to continue to worship. And notice the very end, verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin. He did not charge God with moral impropriety. At the end of chapter 1, Job 1, Satan 0. Satan said, You let me do this to him, he'll walk away. Nope. Job didn't walk away. Job turned to God and said, God, let you and me get through this together because I don't know how else to deal with this other than with you. Walking away from you, God, is not the option, even when I'm in my deepest pain. It's only with you that we can navigate these times in our life. Oh, my friends, God wants to create in us such a heart of worship. And you know why he's doing it? Because you and I may think that what we've been through as a people these last couple of years have been hard. I think God is saying harder times are coming. And I need to prepare my people that they won't walk away from me when even harder things come into their life. And so God in his grace and mercy and love for us is trying to prepare us for what's coming. God just simply wants us to respond to him and say, God, I give you my heart. And let's start working on some of those things in our hearts that need to be worked on and dealt with. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, I know that 
these weeks ahead are going to be difficult at times and draining. Emotional. Stretching us. But God, I know you have good plan for us. And in your love, you want us to deal with some things in our heart, God, that just need to be dealt with. And to come to understand it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to allow the pain to affect us. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to to be angry with you in the sense that, God, we express that to you, God. But most importantly, God, that we learn to do it with you and not without you. So, God, I pray that over these next weeks that our hearts for you become even more strengthened and solidified in you than they ever have been before. And that, God, our heart of worship at the Oasis Church and individually as those who make up this church, God, will be stronger than ever. And that, God, we will allow you to do a work down deep in our souls and in our hearts. God, we give ourselves to you today. We stand, in a sense, naked before you. You know us everything about us, God. May we just stand exposed to you, God, as we lift up a heart of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.